News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about what's going on in the United States right now, because this morning things are tense, especially in New York City, where there have been protests. Law enforcement is ramping up in case former President Donald Trump is arrested tomorrow as he said he would be. So what is this case? How have we gotten to this point? Well, let's get the details on the latest now. Reggie Giacchini joins us now, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So let's start with the case here. What Which case is this he might get charged in? So this is linked to the uh, hush money payments, $130,000 in alleged hush money payments to keep uh, an affair with an adult film star, Stormy Daniels, quiet. This all came to light in 2016 uh, from the affair, which was alleged to have happened the year bef- uh, the, the, in the prior decade. Ultimately, what we have here is uh, payments uh, potentially to keep somebody quiet, which were alleged to have been put on the books as an expense paid to Michael Cohen, who was Trump's former fixer, uh, but also as, you know, kind of bleeding into a potential campaign finance violation. So you have one as a misdemeanor, one as a low-level felony, and that is what the grand jury is hearing about in Manhattan. Okay, because this has been going on for a long time, hasn't it? Yes, I mean, this all came about right before the 2016 uh, election, and ultimately that is where some of the conversations about campaign finance violations come in, because uh, we were just, you know, weeks away from the election back then, uh, was this a potential way to ensure that there would be, um, you know, a, a political kind of Hail Mary here to keep Donald Trump uh, in, you know, out of hot water? So if that's ultimately where this leads to, that's where the campaign finance violation could come in. And ultimately, that is a class E felony, according to um, to the legal experts. OK, let's talk about what what the, pre- the former president has said about this. Like, he's the one who announced that he might get arrested tomorrow. He did. He put it on his social media account uh, over the weekend, claiming that a Tuesday arrest was coming. Now, it's worth pointing out his inner team, including his lawyers, have said there has been no information that has been passed along to him. Some of them claiming that leaks are coming from the Manhattan DA's office. But ultimately, the Manhattan DA has not come out to say anything other than he will not allow for his office to face any kind of intimidation uh, or threats. So this was the former president kind of throwing this out there, uh, whether it's it was true or not, but keeping the focus on himself, keeping himself as a at least visible victim to his base of what he still believes to be a politically motivated witch hunt. Right. And he's also called on his supporters to what come and defend him. Well, I mean, look, we've heard this rallying cry from the former president in years past, and ultimately we have seen what happens when the former president riles up his base to a point uh, of no return. What's going to happen in the next couple of days, the next couple of weeks, we don't know, but he did put that call out there saying to protest. And I think what's interesting about this, Simi, is that as he was putting on his social media account, get out there, protest, you know, take back this nation, Republicans, including House uh, Leader, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, was saying, well, I don't really think Donald Trump wants people to go out there and protest. So you now have two competing narratives on something that Trump himself was actually saying, once again, showing that the Republicans are in a bind over not only what Donald Trump may have done, but what he is presently saying. Right. And this comes at a very tough time for the Republican Party, doesn't it? Because they, you know, are trying to turn the page here. They're trying to have a race to see who's going to get the Republican nomination. And this kind of sidetracks all of that. Well, I mean, look, it all kind of also blends it together. You have a number of 
people either in the race currently or potentially that are going to be in the race who now have to find themselves possibly lining up behind Donald Trump to support him, like former Vice President Mike Pence, who over the weekend argued that this was simply just Democrats trying to go after the former president, as they have done, when this should be a time that Mike Pence should be trying to separate himself to try and, you know, create a path forward uh, for himself. Uh, you know, at the same time, you have Republicans who have sat on these committees, you know, the, the weaponization of U.S. government, uh, who are now saying, well, look, we can use this as a motive to go after the Biden administration and the Justice Department, to go after the Manhattan district attorney, who they believe are simply persecuting or prosecuting or going after this former president because they don't like him. They see this as nothing more than a political gotcha as opposed to what meat may actually be on the bone. So Republicans, yes, they are fearful of what might come from this, whether it hurts or hinders or helps Donald Trump, but they're also using it to their own advantage to say this is why we're in power so that we can simply go after Democrats. Okay, and so I would imagine the New York City, like law enforcement, everybody there, they're kind of bracing for this, aren't they? Absolutely. New York police uh, are set to hold uh, a meeting today because there is a potential for uh, a pro-Trump protest in southern Manhattan at some point later today. We don't know what that's going to look like, but uh, this is a group of um, of a political base, or at least a part of a political base, that is staunchly and firmly in place behind uh, Donald Trump. And, and oftentimes, if he calls people to do something, we have seen what happens when that call is made. So that is why you're hearing from the Manhattan uh, uh, district attorney that his office is not going to deal with these kinds of threats or intimidation. They're going to continue doing their work, but police are also uh, preparing themselves to bring reinforcements in for whatever might happen tonight because we saw what happened just a year and yeah. a half ago. Trump holds a rally, and then what happened after the rally? And I see that this is really also impacting the other candidates in that Republican lead, that race too because uh, they're all being pressured to come out and, and support Donald Trump. Absolutely. They are being forced to pressure uh, the former president. Like I said, the vice president is doing that. But uh, but New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu also trying to, uh, you know, make sure that he's wading the waters here appropriately by not pushing back too heavily on uh, on the case. But at the same time, saying that this is an unprecedented moment. Ultimately, what you have here are Republicans saying that this is dangerous to have uh, prosecutors or a grand jury or any kind of kind of, uh, uh, political turmoil for a former president because it is unprecedented. And Trump's own legal team said that this is moving the country into a dangerous uh, new era. The question becomes, are these Republicans saying it is dangerous now because politicians can be held accountable? Or is it dangerous because of the consequences that might come from what happens after a politician is held accountable? It's You kind of have to weigh which one are they actually talking about here. Okay, so we won't know until later today like what's actually going to happen tomorrow. Yes. So there is uh, more testimony to the grand jury today. Trump denied uh, or declined to come and testify uh, in Manhattan. They have a surrogate going as well. Somebody who used to work closely with Michael Cohen, the star witness. He's going to try and discredit Michael Cohen. But the DA's office says that their information and, and their documents and the testimony they have is rock solid. Whether the arrest comes tomorrow, we need to wait and see whether the arrest comes on Thursday because they sit on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Kind of a, an up in the air thing, whether it's Donald Trump who says something Everybody's watching social media once again. I guess we are. All right, Reggie, thank you. Thank you. Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. It is going to be one of those weeks of following what happens in the United States on this, of course. And uh, lots of uh, lots of pressure right now down there with everything that is going on. And we'll continue to follow that story. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Now, humans aren't the only ones these days who need to worry about a highly contagious type of flu. The H5N1 avian influenza virus has been hitting birds hard in the last year. You may have heard that as many as eight skunks have been killed in Vancouver as a result of the virus. So what is that saying about how it's spreading? Well, the arrival of the annual spring bird migration is one of the concerns, actually, about how this might spread. So to find out more, we are joined now by Peter R.C. Sejosi, Professor of Forestry and Conservation Science at the University of British Columbia. Peter, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. So what do we know, Peter, about this particular strain of, of avian flu and how it affects wildlife? Well, to tell you the truth, I don't think we know a lot yet. I mean, there's been, um, you know, outbreaks over the last couple of years off and on, which have caused people to start monitoring. In the U.S., there's a fairly extensive monitoring program of waterfowl, uh, where people um, actually collect mallards to uh, different times of the year to check prevalence. And um, so people are lear- just starting to learn about it, and uh, they're starting to learn about the strains by sequencing the bacteria or by the viruses to find out where they've come from. And um, and it's pretty clear that they uh, reside as reservoirs in wild uh, species of various types. And as we're finding, there's um, a low but consistent transmission rate among bird species to uh, mammals, and occasionally, very occasionally, to humans. Okay, so why is the spring migration such a concern? Well, I don't know that it's a special concern. It's just that we know that uh, wild populations sometimes are the sources of of diseases, in this case, highly infectious, uh, this H5N1. And because there's an awful lot of birds moving through our area in spring, there's just some possibility that one of those birds is carrying it and and will uh, communicate or or, um, convey it to another individual. So it's more the number of birds coming through, I think, um, uh, rather than anything else. Do we understand how this virus does move from animal to animal? I don't think it is very well known, other than viruses, just like we know for humans, uh, travel to animal to animal, usually by uh, being passed from uh, fluid or feces or things like that from uh, hand to mouth. And so the kinds of hand washing things we've learned to do well for COVID over the last few years are the same kinds of things people recommend if you come in contact with uh, um, uh, uh, ailing wild bird uh, and uh, or if you uh, have birds of your own or mined chickens or things like that. Um, the government is, is certainly uh, given lots of advice to people uh, to be extra careful in handling birds, their waste and things like that. Right. I'm not sure people, I mean, we've been hearing about this kind of impacting poultry farms, but I'm not sure the general public understands that we need to also be aware of this. Well, I mean, I suppose, you know, that's something that we're still learning about. Uh, we do need to be aware of it in part because there are um, economic impacts of this. And so there, there are things that uh, farmers might do to protect their flocks at certain times of the year. Uh, and w- with people, of course, when we hear about incidents in wildlife, we'll be worried about our pets and ourselves. But the truth is, is that we don't come into contact with the average person with um, wild birds very often. And so by staying away from ailing birds and uh, so you can call a BC hotline to report them and not necessarily handle them and, uh, and following those kind of normal things that you do when you were handling any wildlife, um, I think I think the the worry is probably somewhat minimal uh, for personal health, 
but something we should be cognizant of. So this particular strain, have we seen it before? Has it been around for a while? You know, that's a it's a good question that I can't ask in detail because I'm not or answer in detail because I'm not a virologist. But what I've read about it is that there's a number of uh, historic strains, and as you know, that people often use DNA technology now to understand the history of strains. And so there are uh, um, uh, there are about three strains that have mixed over the years, and um, uh, one of them has an Asian uh, uh, bird flu component, and one of them has a uh, one from North America, and those have combined over time. And so people actually track the strain but when they find the virus by doing that DNA sequencing. But really, I think people are just starting to learn about how the virus is spreading and what its history has been right. in North America. You study wild birds, right? Are you, you've, you've seen the kind of the migratory patterns of wild birds? Sure. I, I stu- I've studied wild birds for half century in B.C. And, wow. and, uh, at, and so know something about birds moving through here. And so, you know, that is why um, uh, that's why a lot of scientists who handle birds are aware of it, because the Canadian Wildlife Service and others have been letting us know that it's around so that if anyone sees an ailing animal, you take special care in handling it. Well, but what- I mean, pe- people like myself are handling birds, you know, quite regularly. And so it's different than the average person. Peter, I'm so curious, like what kind of changes have you noticed, if any, of migratory patterns in all the years that you've been studying these wild birds? Well, not just me, but, you know, the people who monitor migratory birds have have, uh, detected very, very big uh, declines, of course, in birds over time, at least some species. Uh, um, And, uh, you know, that's been widely reported in the news, particularly for migrants going to uh, Central and South America. Our waterfowl populations, many of them have done somewhat better. So our our, um, ducks and geese have been, you know, fairly well taken care of uh, in terms of us conserving them. Uh, And um, overall, you know, we still have a few million birds coming through every year, but it's a lot fewer than it was historically. That has nothing to do with bird flu. That has to do with, of course, changes to the environment generally. Okay, so then, and Peter, what then do you think people should be aware of as the migration starts to begin this season? Well, I mean, for people who keep chickens, of course, they'll already be aware of it. And there's lots of information on the web, both from the uh, um, Canadian Food and Agriculture Association that can be found by searching. And there's very detailed information uh, by the USDA uh, on their monitoring program, uh, the kinds of species that are being infected, and the kinds of care one should take in monitoring their own flocks. And, of course, the biggest concern would be those people who have larger commercial flocks. And they'll already be aware of it because they're walking inside, in and outside of their barns. And as a, as a uh, consequence of that, they could be carrying in, say, fecal material from wild birds from out in the field into their uh, exclosures. So really the main thing to do is to maintain hygienic procedures to keep your birds safe if you have pet birds or commercial birds. All right, good advice. Peter, thanks for your time this morning. Sure. Thanks, Simi. Appreciate that. That's Peter Arsisi, who's a professor of forestry and conservation science at the University of British Columbia and has been studying uh, wild birds for years now. And with the annual kind of bird migration beginning, there are concerns about the spread of this particular type of avian flu that has been causing some problems out there. This is Mornings with Simi. We have certainly come a long way when it comes to treatment of HIV and AIDS, haven't we? What was once 
a death sentence is now something that can be treated with the right medications. And those medications are continuing to advance and get better all the time. I mean, way back when, I remember when they used to talk about a drug cocktail to keep HIV at bay, and they had to keep changing the drugs that were in the cocktail to continually make it effective. Well, now there are even long-acting injectable HIV treatments that eliminate the need for daily oral medication. Except here in BC, they are not as easy to access. So let's find out why that is. Sarah Chown joins us now, Executive Director of AIDS Vancouver. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I I find this fascinating to talk about because I I was a health reporter back in the 90s and remember all the advances that were being made, particularly here in Vancouver, when it comes to HIV and AIDS treatment. Like We've certainly come a long way, haven't we? Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why we're really surprised that we don't have long-acting injectable HIV treatment here in British Columbia yet. Yeah. Tell me about these medications. Uh, So these medications represent um, lots of scientific development to be able to take something that currently, as you mentioned, is is, uh, treatment available in a daily pill form and make it available uh, instead of every day, once a month or once every other month in its injectable format, uh, in in an injectable provided by a healthcare provider. Um, And so for many people living with HIV, they've been waiting for um, years and years for this scientific advancement to happen. And now what's actually happened here in British Columbia is that people living with HIV have been waiting for it to be readily available for three years after it's been approved by Health Canada. Why? I mean, BC is usually at the forefront of these things. Yeah, BC usually is at the forefront of these things. And so we, along with our partners, have actually contacted the BC Centre for Excellence in HIV AIDS, where Um, HIV medication and treatment decisions are made in this province, as well as uh, folks at the Ministry of Health and are really trying to understand from their perspective why this delay. And at this point, we haven't really heard an answer that um, we think is reasonable. And we'd really like to see this happen, um, not only because it's been over over three years since Health Canada approved it, um, but also because we know it's going to have huge impacts on the quality of life and the safety of many people living with HIV. And what is the situation like in other provinces? Yeah, so in other provinces, um, has been become available. And so people living with HIV with their healthcare providers are able to choose an injectable HIV treatment option if that's right for them. And here in British Columbia, um, we're not aware of anyone who actually has been able to access this really important option. So where is the disconnect coming from, Sarah? Because I know the Ministry of Health has said they think that this one particular drug, the Cabinuva, is available on a case-by-case basis. Uh, do you know of any patients who have needed it and haven't gotten it? Yeah, we, we do know of patients whose requests have been uh, denied. And to, to our understanding, the guidelines uh, came onto the website of the BC Centre for Excellence after the correspondence we had with them this fall. And from our perspective, these guidelines, they didn't include any consultation with us or any of the other folks we know that are are part of HIV social services in this province. Um, And the guidelines are extremely restrictive, and it leaves many of us who work in HIV sort of puzzled about how someone might actually qualify under the current guidelines. So what we're really looking for today is making, um, making it available so 
patients and their healthcare providers can make decisions that are best for them, just the same way it's happening in other provinces across the country. Sarah, is it challenging sometimes these days to get, you know, health officials to pay attention to HIV that perhaps we've taken some of these advances for granted? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that BC has continued to pay attention to HIV um, in some ways, and uh, we really want to continue that with with bringing these long-acting options to British Columbia today. And I think, you know, to really highlight some of the groups that we know will benefit, um, we know that there's a number of people living with HIV who face physical violence from their partners when an HIV status is disclosed. And so for that group of people, um, storing a bottle of pills, having to find a way to take a pill every day um, without that being something that their partner or someone that they live with might might notice is a huge challenge and has, you know, immediate physical health risks in, in some cases. So that's one group we know will really benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, and the group that actually first talked to me about this is young people who were born with HIV and who really struggled um, and fought with often their caregivers, often their doctors as teens, uh, and preteens about whether or not they wanted to continue to take a daily pill. And for some of those young people, um, you know, the future of injectable HIV medicine um, was one thing that really got them through those periods. And we know that, you know, taking HIV treatment is a, a life-saving thing, and we need that to continue. And, and we believe that long-acting injectables is, is another option that's really going to help um, those two communities as well as many other people living with HIV. Well, Sarah, thanks for telling us about it this morning. Thank you so much. It was great to chat. That's Sarah Chan, who's the Executive Director of AIDS Vancouver. They're making the argument that they need better coverage when it comes to these new long-acting injectable drugs for HIV and AIDS patients in this province. This is Mornings with Simi. If you use transit in the Fraser Valley, you need to be making other plans indefinitely. Bus drivers are on strike after being unable to reach an agreement with First Transit. Now, that's the company that is contracted to provide transit services in Abbotsford, Chilliwack, Mission, Hope and Agassiz Harrison. Joining us now to talk more about this, about what is going on there is Jane Gibbons, president of QP561. Jane is on the picket line this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. What is the situation out there uh, right now? So we're talking everything is at a stop when it comes to transit? Uh, Just for, as you mentioned, the Fraser Valley Transit is everything is at a stop except Handy Dart Essential Services. Okay, and what is the designation for Essential Services and who who can rely on that? Um, Anyone who has cancer treatment, uh, dialysis, and uh, multiple sclerosis. Those three treatments will always be taken care of. Okay, so Jane, how did we get to this point? What happened with the negotiations? Um, Well, we uh, sat at the table for quite a few days, and the only part that um, the employer is uh, not really willing to discuss is is the main issue for our members, which is wages and pension. How far apart are we talking about here? The same distance we were in the very beginning, Simi, unfortunately, that's one area that they are not discussing. We are still at the 30 plus percent difference. That's pretty sizable here. Has there been any other kind of movement? Like, how would you have characterized the discussions? Uh, Very slow. Uh, We've talked, like I said, we've talked about everything, but uh, almost every time they come to the table, they've made it clear we're not moving on our money. We're not talking about it. 
How has the job changed, uh, Jane? What's it like for bus drivers in the Fraser Valley? It has increased. Um, They have quite a bit of full bus loads now uh, that they didn't have before. It's a huge, huger ridership. Um, The increase of a, uh, it's called the 66 Express, which goes from Chilliwack all the way to Low Heat Station. They leave on an average 20 to 25 people behind almost every bus in the morning when people are going into work. And then when we're picking them up at the end of the day, bringing them home, um, there's just not enough service uh, for the amount of people that need it. So it's not like the uh, ridership isn't there. Right. And so what about hiring new people? Has that been a problem? (laughs) Yes. Um, What ends up happening is they hire people, they go into training, and then they find out what their wages and lack of uh, pension and... Uh, benefits, uh, partial paid. Once they find that out, they usually leave. Uh, We'll start with 10 people in training and end up with two that stay. Retention has been a huge issue for uh, the whole time that I've been dealing with this contract, which is over almost three years. It's been a huge issue. How is the job comparable, say, to a bus driver in Metro Vancouver? Pretty much the same. Um, it's, it's, I don't know if you've been in Abbotsford and Chilliwack lately, but, uh, they've become a big city. Oh yes. Um, and yeah, yeah, right. It's, it's not what everyone thinks that small town out, out, uh, out in the Fraser Valley. When you hear Fraser Valley, people assume it's just small towns, but Abbotsford as is huge. It's an absolute huge area and, um, it's city driving just like everybody else. And the fact that we drive our buses into the into uh, the Metro Vancouver. We drive there all the time, so we're dropping off our riders in Metro Vancouver for a Metro Vancouver bus driver to pick them up. Yet that person is making thirty percent more, and we're at the same station. Okay, that's what I was wondering about then. So, in terms of salary benefits and that, so the job is not the same. The job's the same. They just ain't getting paid the same. Okay. So how long is exactly the same. Jane, is there any, any negotiations that are scheduled right now? Nope. My phone's open though. My phone's on and they can call me anytime, but uh, they need to come and talk wages. They, they're, they're willing to come to the table as they've said. And so are we, but they're not willing to talk about wages or pension at all. All right, what is your message then to people who, as you point out, there's so many people relying on transit in the Fraser Valley? Well, our message is thank you. We've had nothing but honks and waves and people walking by. We get it. We understand. We're here for you. Um, we've had tremendous support from uh, from people who ride the bus and people who just see us every day. Um, so we just want to say thank you to the public for all the support that they've been giving to our members. It's been fantastic. All right. Well, Jane, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. And best of luck. That's Jane Gibbons, the president of QP561, joining us from the picket line this morning where Fraser Valley uh, bus drivers are on strike. Transit operators there uh, have walked off. They say they're on strike indefinitely. And this goes back actually quite a ways. As Jane mentioned, this has been going on for months. So back in December, three, four months ago, they had voted in favor of job action. In fact, 98% of 
the transit operators in the Fraser Valley had voted for job action at that time. Now, it's important to note that Handy Dart is continuing to operate at essential service levels. And as that was just explained to us, that is for passengers who require uh, cancer treatment, uh, renal dialysis or kidney treatment, or they have MS, they require regular appointments and treatment for that. Uh, Those passengers will continue to get their handy DART service. But all other transit services in the Fraser Valley essentially are stopped right now uh, until they reach a deal. And who knows when that could be. Uh, Job sounds like uh, wages is the number one sticking issue in that. Uh, And we'll see. We'll keep you updated on how that goes. But essentially, if you rely on transit in the Fraser Valley, it sounds like more and more people are all the time. Uh, you're out of luck indefinitely. So that's the area of Abbotsford, Chilliwack, Mission, Hope, Agassiz, Harrison. There is no bus service for you. Keep it tuned in right here for the very latest on that. This is Mornings with Simi. We've taken a few steps over the past few years and in more recent months to strengthen the integrity measures we have in place to ensure we're dealing with real letters of acceptance from institutions. But every once in a while, you do see bad actors, particularly from other parts of the world who are difficult to police from Canada, who seek to take advantage of international students. That is Sean Fraser, the Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship. This story is heartbreaking for a lot of people. There's some media reports out there that peg the number at 700. That's potentially how many international students could face deportation from Canada after their admission letters were found to be not genuine because of, as Minister Fraser just said there, a bad faith actor in India who was issuing these letters. So apparently the students had all applied for student visas through a consulting company that has since been closed. And it was fine. They came to Canada. They studied. Some of those students then applied for permanent residency status. And that's when their offer letters to come to Canada came under scrutiny. And they found out that their letters were potentially fraudulent. And it is sizable, as I said there. Hundreds of students came through as a result of this consulting company. So how do we prevent something like this from happening? And what's going to happen now to these students? Well, Matthew McDonald is with us now, a regulated Canadian immigration consultant and founder of Matthew McDonald Immigration Services. Uh, Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, Simi. Have you ever heard of a case this kind of extensive before? This is definitely the largest case of this size that I have heard of. Um, you know, certainly, as uh, Sean Fraser mentioned, um, from time to time, um, we do hear cases of fraud. Um, you know, they're often recognized much earlier, um, but certainly for something, we're hearing numbers of, you know, 100 to 700 in the, in the reports of this developing story. It's definitely concerning in terms of its size and scope. Right, because my understanding as well is the students didn't know, right? They thought they were coming here to study. What happens now to them? So the the big question here is we're looking at um, something called misrepresentation. And that's why um, this is, um, from what I read in the stories, um, this is being taken to the federal um, court. This is being challenged through a process of judicial review. Um, the, the misrepresentation, I think, is, is something we should look at. It's, it's kind of the criminal or the cardinal sin within Canadian immigration. I'm um, really our... our Canadian immigration system for it, for it to, you know, it has to have integrity. It has to, um, people have to have faith in, in it that, that people aren't fraudulently trying to come to Canada. I think for Canadians to have trust in the system. So that is important. And so the, the, the law of the system does have to have some teeth um, when misrepresentation occurs. So, you know, when there's fraudulent documents used to get into Canada. But I think the crux of the matter is 
um, balancing the, the teeth of the law with what appears to be growing in the, this case that, um, that these students are victims of fraud themselves. Um, I, I, you know, I'm not involved in the matter. I haven't verified the facts, but the story seems to be that this there was this ghost consultant who seems to have who tricked a large number of people who um, who came to Canada, um, and these these documents were not caught as fraudulent by IRCC or the CBSA. Um, that only years later, after these students have have come, they seem to have actually studied in Canada, worked in Canada, seem to have been um, quite rule abiding through their entire time here. Um, and it's only now that um, they themselves are possibly finding out that they were were. Um, were duped as well. So that's, I think, the crux of the matter in, in, in how we, what kind of level of, what, what humanitarian and compassionate lens um, we, we could take on, on this case if these um, students are indeed victims of fraud. Right. So what, what are the steps that are usually taken here, Matthew? Like if you had a client that was going through this, what would you advise them to do? Um, so um, it's uh, it's definitely a, a complex area, and it's uh, something that you do want legal representation on that take a lot of care. I do work with international st- students a lot on their transition to permanent residency. Um, I would actually, I don't do with deportations and removal. Um, I would actually refer to someone else who specializes in this area. But um, what happens first is that if there's any allegation of misrepresentation, the um, the, the, the applicant, uh, the foreign national here, would get a procedural fairness level, l- letter. So they do have the opportunity to respond. And at that point, that's what would trigger, I, I think, would scare anyone enough to seek out legal advice on how best to respond. Um, so um, the response um, it seems to have moved along the way from the reports I'm reading to the point that um, the um, CBSA has 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 not accepted the, the response and this is moving to the federal court now. And I, I think these are... It sounds like, again, I'm just reading the news reports myself, that these are going to be examined at, a, at, an, at an individual case-by-case um, level through the federal court. Okay, so how is it that students do come to this country to study? What is that process generally like? Um, the standard process is that they would apply to a post-secondary institution. There is a list of designated learning institutions that are approved by the provinces. So the province um, gives colleges and universities or other educational institutions, um, the authority to accept international students. So there's a provincial level of approval first. And then, um, so once the applicant gets accepted into one of these designated learning institutions that's been approved by the province, then um, they would apply to the federal level for something called a study permit. And with that study permit application, they have to submit a letter of acceptance. So um, understandably, um, I think back 2017, 2018, um, you know, these were, were digital documents or scanned um, versions of what was on paper, you know, as digital um, processes have changed over the past 10 years. Um, and, and so it would be up to IRCC to, to verify the letter of acceptance. Um, since 2017, you know, there has been growing digital solutions to try to, um, to improve the, uh, the, the, the trust in the system. Um, the, the international student program in Canada has grown exponentially over the past 10 years. Um, in 2022, there were 800,000 study permit holders in the country. Um, you know, of those, um, about three, over 300,000 of those were Indian students. Um, so there's, there's a huge demand, and I think part of the challenge IRCC is facing is, is trying to provide um, solutions. Um, and they're looking at digital solutions to, you know, to, for verification, um, to, to prevent misrepresentation, to prevent fraud. I understand um, that it's, it's, a, it's a big problem for us, um, that requires cooperation throughout the sector um, in order for, um, for this to work for, for the benefit of all, um, for the benefit of the, the post-secondary institution, to know that 
um, that their documents aren't being faked um, for the benefits of international students to know that they have a genuine letter of acceptance, that they're not being victims. They're, they're not victims of bad actors who do exist, unfortunately, um, across the world because it's, you know, Canada can't police the world. Um, so um, that's kind of how the evolution um, is looking. But ultimately, back to your question about what the process looks like, um, when the student has that letter of acceptance, they apply for a study permit, and it is an IRCC officer that approves them for a study permit. They get a visa if necessary, fly to Canada. The study permit is issued at the border upon arrival, and then they, they are expected to enroll at their school. Um, and they are, there, there are requirements, again, for them once they're in Canada to be actively pursuing their studies while they are here. Right. Okay. Matthew, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. It's always really neat when we can find someone who has created something unique and special that we can tell everybody about. That's how I feel about this next story we're going to be talking about this morning. Michelle Stoney is with us now, a Gitsan artist who has been creating some unusual, really special decks of cards, actually. Michelle, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell me, how did you first decide that you were going to work on this project? How did it come to you? It all started in 2020, and for those who've been following me throughout the pandemic, I've been creating free coloring pages. I'm a full-time artist, and I wanted a way to give back to people when they're stuck in their homes. And for the month of December, I decided I was going to do one a day, and I was just sitting down, relaxing at my sister's house, and for these uh, coloring pages, I was waiting for like inspiration and like just regular life, everyday stuff. And a poker commercial came on and a light bulb came on. And I was like, oh, that would be cool, the Ace of Spades. And then I was like, oh, but that, I wanted to challenge myself more. So then I started thinking about other things that I could do in a deck. And then the, the Joker card really jumped out to me because... Um, as a way to connect to my culture and our joker, which we call the trickster is um, the Raven. So I ended up making a Raven uh, trickster card as a coloring page. So this deck of cards though, that you have designed, I mean, they are intricate. They are detailed. You must've put so much work into these. Oh yeah. Each card took, I don't, I don't even know how many hours I spent on on this card, but in total, it was around two years off and on. Um, between work, I would sit on my iPad and and research um, Northwest Coast culture, looking at like old regalia and and old images from archives. Yeah, it was a lot of lot of research. Oh, they are beautiful. Just looking at some of the pictures of them there. So tell me about what you based all the cards on. So the cards I wanted to make as closely to the classic cards as possible. If they're holding something in their hands, I wanted to find something similar in in Northwest Coast culture. And one I'm looking at right now is the Jack of Hearts. And he's holding a carving knife. And on the top of him is... um, is an ads, which is a carving tool. And this card is what I call the carver. And uh, in the middle, there's a, a copper shield. So it's like a jeweler and a carver type artist card. 
is one of my favorites. And I just based them off of traditional Northwest Coast um, culture. There's a weaver who, there's designs of Chilkat weaving and Raven's Tail. And there's a berry picker, um, medicine woman. Yeah, they're they're beautiful. You certainly had no shortage of ideas, though, did you? <laughs> yeah, it was kind of hard to narrow it down to just 12 cards. Um, I tried my best to to capture all of my culture. And I call them Gitsan cards, but really they represent all of the Northwest Coast um, traditional cultures. The reason why I call them Gitsan cards is just because we have four clans in our in our um, nation and there's four sets, there's four um, suits, so it matches yeah. really well. I mean, these are sold out on Etsy, and and it seems to me the reaction has been very enthusiastic. How does that feel? Oh yeah, I, it's all just come on so fast, and I'm just so appreciative of um, everybody's. I, people have been emailing me stories about how they used to play with their grandparents and um, not only First Nations people, but other people, too, who really connect with it. And that just really, uh, I don't know, makes me so happy. I was going to say, you're right, though, but that's a very universal thing to think of your grandparents. I, my grandmother is the one who taught me how to play all these different kind of card games. I grew up playing them with her. Do you think that's what's kind of it's tapped into? Is it... Everybody has a story like this. Oh, yeah. It's really connected with everybody. When I was growing up, I never played cards with my grandpa, but um, he would play solitaire every morning, so I would see that. I actually learned how to play solitaire from him. So, um, yeah, he was my main inspiration growing up and my father figure, and he's passed on now, but I know he's he's smiling down at me, bragging to all his buddies up there. Wow. Are you able to keep up with how popular these are right now, Michelle? Like just making sure the production is there? Um, yeah, I was up until midnight trying to get a bunch of orders out because I'm actually headed out on the road um, soon and my assistant's away. But we've been really busy. I might have to hire more people to help me get all these out there. But we're trying to get them out as soon as we can. Michelle, that's so impressive. My, and you, you probably thought, look, at this came to you during a poker commercial. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, just imagining where it came from. I never thought I would be able to make a deck of cards. But yeah, so much work went into it. I'm just so happy that it's received so well, not only just around my community, but around all of BC now, I guess. And So when somebody buys these cards and holds them in their hand, Michelle, what do you want them to take from that when they look at them and go through them? I want them to look at them and find all the hidden details inside, maybe find new things when they look at it, maybe do some research into, oh, what is that um, image about? and try to find more, more about the culture, more about the history. And for First Nations people, maybe use it as like a teaching tool, like to show um, our culture to other people and just be, um, yeah, connected to it and share it. I certainly can see how people would do that. Well, Michelle, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me.